Amen. I want to start by uh, painting a picture of the reality of the world that we live in every day. Uh, when I was in college, my freshman year, I, uh, I lived on a, in, in a dorm on campus. And it was, uh, it was actually the biggest co-ed dorm on our campus. And uh, I, I chose to be in that dorm. It's kind of funny because when I got there, I realized that everybody else from my school had that one as their last choice. But I knew it was the biggest one. This was before I even knew I was an extrovert. But, uh, you know, I just want to be around a lot of people. So uh, it was a co-ed dorm. And uh, when you, when th- there's, a, there's elevators in the middle. When you get out, I lived on the third floor. When you get out, if you turn to the right, it's all the guys' rooms. And if you turn to the left, it's all the girls' rooms. And I remember uh, outside of this dorm also is a, is a whole row of benches that go all the way down to the road and under, you know, this, under these rows of trees. I remember one night I was uh, walking back to my dorm and uh, I was walking and uh, just kind of minding my own business and going back to my room. And uh, I saw a girl kind of sitting at the end of one of the benches. And I recognized her because she actually lived on my floor. To tell you the truth, I didn't really like this girl. I thought she was kind of a little bit on the wild side, if you know what I mean. Um, and uh, But uh, what caught my eye was that she was sitting there by herself and she was crying. So uh, obviously I was curious. I wanted to know what was going on. So um, I went up to her and just kind of sat down, started talking to her, tried to find out what was going on. And it turns out that uh, she told me that she had just uh, slept with a guy that she just met. And uh, after they were done, the guy kind of just got dressed, left, and she tried calling him, no answer, no nothing. He just kind of disappeared. And uh, she felt really used. And, uh, and for me, hearing this, um, you know, this was a very different time in my life. You know, this was 10 years ago. I was a lot more judgmental. I was very legalistic. And uh, I just remember the only thing that I could think of at this moment was, well, you probably shouldn't have been so promiscuous, and this would never have happened to you. Right. I mean, I'll be honest. That's what I thought. But I didn't say that to her. But that was my attitude. Right. And kind of all the year, all these years later, looking back to that night, what I realized that what I failed to uh, what I failed to see past her brokenness that she had carried was that in a very skewed way, just like many, many young women on our college campuses, she was just trying to answer the question, am I lovable? Am I desired after Am I worth anything? And sadly, the only place that she uh, knew where to go find that were with men who have over and over again taken advantage of her. What she really needed that night was for somebody to come and carry her to Jesus. So I want to read a uh, a passage that uh, you guys pretty much have seen a, a, an artistic expression of. Um, and this is uh, c- coming out of Luke chapter 5. Uh, verses 17 through 26. And uh, I know like most of the time we have it projected on the screen. I have everybody just kind of look through it. But I want you guys to take a posture of imagining yourself being in, in that crowd that day. Being as one of the spectators watching everything unfold. So I'm going to read this passage. And if it's helpful for you, you can close your eyes and just kind of be there and listen in. You don't have to necessarily read along the screen. Okay, whatever posture you choose. So here we go. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. One day... As he was teaching, referring to Jesus, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and from Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present with him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. 
When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I want to talk real quick about the setting of this story. Um, So this was a time, um, there's another account of the same, or another recording of the same account in in Mark chapter 2. And uh, in in that passage, we can find out that uh, where this took place was in Capernaum. Uh, which is where uh, many of the disciples are from. It's a place that Jesus was familiar with. In fact, this is a place where Jesus kind of centered his public ministry around. And the time that this happened, uh, we can find out also before the Mark uh, recording that Jesus has been going around uh, teaching, preaching, and healing the sick. So there's no doubt that word about him has been spreading. And uh, so... Uh, obviously, you know, everybody is curious to hear about this, this new guy. I mean, new guy to them, right? Not, not really, Jesus is not really new to this place, but for many of the people, they're, they're starting to hear about all these things that this new guy in town is doing. So they're curious and they want to come find out what was actually going on, right? So let's talk about the people real quick. Who are the people that are involved in this passage? First off, obviously we have Jesus, the main character, right? And I want to note that, uh, it does say that the power of the Lord was with him. Uh, to heal the sick, right? So Jesus was there with the Spirit of God, right? And then there's also a crowd, right? You guys, right? The, the, the place I asked you guys to put your, yourself in. So the crowd have, have been coming. They've been hearing all these things. They're coming. They want to check out what's going on, right? Now, there's also another group of people called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, you would know that these are uh, the folks that are kind of they're experts on all the religious things, right? They're, they're people that um, study Scripture like no other. They can quote you Scripture you know, you know, left and right, they can tell you uh, about all these crazy laws that are, you know, that we have a trouble, like, finish even reading in the Old Testament. Like, they have this on their heart. They know it by heart, and they practice it, right? They practice all these traditions. Uh, they, uh, they also, uh, you know, they also command uh, or demand moral purity from people, and they try to do that themselves, right? They give, they do give, you know, to the cause, and they do all these good things, Essentially, you know, sometimes when we read scripture, we have this bias of like knowing the Pharisees are kind of legalistic. So like we look at them in a a really um, bad or negative light. But in in truth of the matter, they're also just a group of people who are trying to to do the right thing. Right Uh, now, the way that they went about doing it is not also it's not always the the best way, but that's what they were doing. Right. Um, So uh, there's and then. As the story kind of unfolds, we find out there's another group of people that showed up, right? These people, these friends who were carrying their uh, a paralytic man, paralytic man, and they showed up on the scene. And this is kind of the setting of the story, right? So this is how, uh, you know, when these, this was happening, where this was happening, and the, all the people that are involved. And now we dive into kind of the, the interaction that Jesus has 
but with this full room of people, okay? And I want to focus kind of this message this morning on this uh, interaction right here. So in verse 20, we read that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Their faith, right? So, I mean, obviously the story is about the healing of this guy who was paralyzed. Um, but the first thing we see in this interaction is that Jesus saw their faith, the faith of those friends that brought this guy to Jesus. So my question then is, what is so unique about their faith? What makes their faith different from anybody else's faith? In other words, what kind of faith grabbed God's attention that day? Right? Because I think um, we can assume that, you know, everybody, at least for the crowds, you guys, right, that all showed up to see this, you know, you, you believe that you believe in Jesus, right? I mean, we hear all these things that Jesus is going to do, so we're going to come and show up and see what he's going to do next, right? So, but what makes the faith of these men or these friends of the paralytic different? So when we talk about faith, we often talk about, like, what does is, what is the, the, the word faith mean? Well, we think, well, faith means that, you know, to believe in something, right? See, all the crowd believed in Jesus, but I think what, the, what these friends did was they took that belief to the next step, and they trusted Jesus. Right, so, so here's the question then, is what is the difference between believing and trusting? So when we believe something, we basically accept something or someone as true, as real, and as possible. Uh, there's not necessarily a requirement for ourselves to be involved in that, right? You can believe in one thing, and if that thing turns out not to be true, you can just turn and believe something else. There's no cost to you, right? But trusting is different because when you trust, there is a reliance on what you believe as the truth. So therefore, it is involving yourself. There is a cost because by trusting, the key word here is reliance, right? By trusting, you are taking a risk with yourself and relying on this. This is why like when people are betrayed by people, they're always like, I trusted you, you know? Because it affects you, right? I trusted you. You betrayed my trust, right? So um, you guys remember the movie Aladdin? So I hope most of you guys have seen this. Um, for those of you that are not familiar with it, um, it's okay. Uh, but the, the movie, it's an old classic Disney movie, right? So in the movie Aladdin, there's two main characters um, that, uh, that I want to talk about here. One, obviously, is Aladdin himself, right? He starts out in this movie as like the street bum, right? But he's not just a bum, but he's, he's also like a philanthropist because he, he's not just like, you know, bumming off things from life and just getting for himself. But, you know, we see the scene where he's like stealing bread and he's about to eat it, but he saw these star- starving children and he gives the bread to the children instead. So we know he has a good heart, right? So we know that he's just, he's not just a street, street bum, but he also wants something more to life, right? He, he, he sits there and he looks at this palace, this beautiful palace in front him he's like one day i want to make something big out of myself right now on the other hand we have another character princess jasmine right princess jasmine lives in this uh this palace right she had everything she could have ever imagined given to her and provided for her as she was growing up but still she was discontent with that life inside the palace right she also wanted something more to life she believes that there's more to, to her life than just living in this palace being a princess and marrying a prince right so one day uh, Princess Jasmine kind of sneaks out of the, the palace, and uh, they, they, uh, Jasmine and Aladdin meets on the street, right? And because of this thing that they shared in common, wanting something more to life, I think they hit it off right away, right? But we, what we also know is that at this time, because of all the things that Aladdin has been doing, stealing and stuff like that, the guards from the palace are, like, trying to look for him, right? And at the same time, Jasmine thinks that the guards are looking for her, too, because she, you know, escaped from the palace. And she thinks that her, her father sent men to come uh, find her. 
So this is one scene that I want to want to talk about is when they were uh, kind of running away from the guards and they were like on the on the edge of the roof of this building, right? And the guards were coming up and they they seemed to be running out of an escape route. Aladdin looked at Jasmine and extended his hand. And what did he say? Do you trust me? And she kind of hesitated for a second because this is a weird question, right? She's like, what? Right? And then he asked again, do you trust me? In other words, what he was saying is, are you willing to take a risk on your life with me? See, she's never been outside the uh, the palace before. She doesn't know this guy. He's practically a stranger. There's no reason why she should have trusted him, right? But something about his invitation was so deeply intriguing that she felt like she had no choice but to say yes. So he, he took her hand and he said, then jump, right? And they jumped. And like, even though like they didn't ultimately escape from the guards, but they did come to a safe landing from the edge of the building, right? And we actually see this uh, exchange of conversation happen one more time in the same exact movie moments later. You guys don't know what I'm talking about? So later on, like, you know, they were separated, blah, blah, blah. And Aladdin gets transformed into Prince Ali, right? He wanted to impress her. He wanted to, to you know, just show up with all this, like, glamour. Uh, but she wasn't really impressed with the flashiness. Of course, she didn't recognize that it was him. It was this little boy that she had met out on the street, right? And there was one night where he kind of showed up on her balcony trying to convince her again um, after she had already blew him off once, right? And uh, basically, the conversation kind of took place again, and she kind of was blowing him off again. It's like... Why don't you just jump off the balcony, kind of jokingly saying that, right? And then that's when he came to his sense, and he was like, you know what? You're right. You know, um, you, you should be able to make your own choices of who you want to be with. So he like, I'll just go now. So he steps on the edge of the balcony, and he jumps off. And she was like, oh, my gosh, what had happened? Have I really, like, made a guy commit suicide? Right? So he runs over. He's like, wait. And then he shows right up, like, right back up, like, in the air. And, and this is when he was on the magic carpet, right? And, and she was like, whoa, whoa, how are you doing that? Right? And she, he flies over around, and he was like, it's a magic carpet. You wouldn't want to go for a ride, would you? And she was like, I don't know. Is it safe? And he goes, sure. Do you trust me? And, like, this oddly and yet familiar question comes up again. She was stunted. She was like, what? And he's like, again, he asked, do you trust me? Once again, are you willing to take a risk on your life with me? See, this strange and yet oddly familiar question rises up again, and it was so irresistibly attractive that she said yes again. And she stepped onto the the magic carpet, and then, you know, I can show you the world. You know how it goes, right? (laughs) So... They fly into the night as a romantic scene, right? But the point that I want to draw here is that the question that he asked, do you trust me? And every time she said yes to that trust, it is always literally followed by a step of faith. See, to trust is always followed by a step of faith. To trust anything or to trust anyone, you have to take a risk in that. And I think that day, the friends of the paralytic that carried him to Jesus, they came because they trusted Jesus. They carried their immobile friend to Jesus, and when they couldn't get in, they dug a hole through the roof, lowering him, risking looking like a fool to everybody else that's there, just so that their friend could be healed. So the question that's being posed this morning is, even for those of us who who wouldn't have a doubt about whether or not we believe in Jesus, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we trust Jesus? How would you respond if Jesus were to come and ask you, do you trust me? How would you respond if Jesus were to come and say, are you willing to take a risk on your life with me? I think that is the type of faith that caused Jesus 
to, to begin speaking and start that interaction that day. So we move into that, what he says, right? So the friend uh, brought, Jesus, brought the, 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 the paralytic to Jesus, and Jesus saw their faith. And then these are the words he spoke, right? He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine for a second, like, what is your reaction to that? I mean, the, the, the scripture here doesn't, doesn't record, right? They only record the reactions of the, the Pharisees. But think, of, think for a second, if you, were, if you were the friends that brought this guy to Jesus, and Jesus said, oh, your, your sins are forgiven. Like, what is your reaction? Well, actually, Jesus, we, we want you to, to, you know, heal him so that he can move, right? What about the crowd? What's your reaction? You're probably like, well, wait a minute. This is not what I came here to see, right? I want to see some miracle. Like, give me my money back, right? Like, they're probably like, what the heck? Like, that's the last thing they would expect him to see, say, right? Now, the scripture does record what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, how they respond, right? Because they immediately responded with skepticism, right? They begin thinking in their hearts, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone, right? So immediately they doubted Jesus and thought that he was a fraud. And they asked a very important question. See, like most of the time we read scripture like this, we already have like a negative like attitude towards the Pharisees. But they asked a really good question here. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They were absolutely right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? But see, what they failed to realize here is the fact that perhaps standing right in front of them was the living God. See, they were so focused on the religion itself that they're missing the whole point, and therefore they're missing God. So the question is, do we, ever, do we always recognize the places where God is in in our everyday life? So I remember last year I was uh, driving to, to campus one night. I think we had a large group, and I, I think I was actually, like, have some kind of speaking engagement that night. And I was driving. I uh, lived by downtown, so I was getting on 408. Now, uh, I, I have, like, yeah, I have, like, strong feelings about 408, right? Because, first of all, like, it's a toll road. I spent, like, probably $100 a month, like, just commuting to and from work, right? So I was driving, but this night, this particular night, I was already already uh, running late a little bit. You know, my fault, okay? Can't blame anyone else, but I was already a little bit late, but this was rush hour, right? So I was on 408, and there was traffic, rush hour traffic. On top of that, I'm sitting in traffic thinking, like, I'm, si- I'm paying tolls to sit here in traffic, so, you know, how I'm just, you know, real happy at this point, right? And then secondly, some genius decided that um, we're going to do construction during rush hour on a toll road right so all the lanes were like closed up i was like stuck in one lane right and to put the cherry on top i was stuck behind this really really slow lady okay so we're driving and i was like oh my gosh so frustrated right like um so finally i saw like in front of me like the lane started to clear out and i was like okay i'm gonna pass this woman like as soon as we get out to the clearing so as soon as we got out i like i started i moved over to the left and like as soon as did that she like slowly cuts in front of me and then I was like, oh, my gosh, you're kidding me. So I did it again, and she did it again. And then for the third time, she did it again when I finally got into the fast lane. So at this point, I was, like, outraged, right? I was thinking, like, oh, my goodness, are you kidding me? I'm on my way to go to campus so I can do ministry, so I can tell people that Jesus loves them. And how dare you cut me off like that, right? So I actually I drove up next to her, and, and, you know, let's just say that I presented myself as the opposite of a follower of Jesus, Okay. Hey, we're all, we all fall short of the glory of God, okay? So we're all sinful human beings. Sometimes we make mistakes. I'm not proud of it, okay? But here's the point, though. In a moment of frustration, see, as a man who is called to minister to others, 
I pretty much did the exact opposite of ministering to this woman. You see, the Pharisees that day, they were so focused on doing the right thing in order to, quote-unquote, make the cut, right? But when God actually showed up right in front of them, they missed him. And sometimes we can also be so focused on our religious expectations that we miss the point and we miss God. Can I be real for, with you guys for a second? And I, I know that most of us in this room here come from kind of like an Asian-American background, right? And uh, I think as a culture, we tend to focus a lot of our time and energy on the successes of our, our academics and our careers, right? We say things to ourselves like, I got to study hard right now so I can get those good grades, so then I can get into those better schools, and after that I can get a good job, and I can get good pay, and then I can get a good house, or my dream house, my dream car, and then at that point I would accomplish my American dreams and be able to repay all those sacrifices that my parents have sacrificed for me, right? But dare I also say that sometimes we even justify it by saying that this is what God wants us to do. He wants us to work hard right now, so that we can get to a position later in life to better serve him. But my challenge for you is that if we are not paying attention to the little things in our everyday life that Jesus might be calling us to sacrifice our time and energy for, and if we're not learning on how to follow Jesus on an everyday basis, imitate what he does on an everyday basis, what makes us think that we're going to just naturally do that when we quote-unquote get there. I think we need to realize that life doesn't start later. It has already started. And if that is so, the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we paying attention to where God is calling us to take a risk today? Are we paying attention to where God is calling us to take a risk right now when we walk out of this building this afternoon? See, uh, as my uh, regional director, my boss's boss, recently said in a, uh, in a, in a conference, uh, she said that, see, the way God speaks to us, God speaks to us perfectly. It is we who hear it imperfectly. In other words, the call from God is always clear, right? But the difference is the question is how are we going to choose to respond? That's what makes the difference, right? See, I, I chose to, to label today's sermon title as, the life of the everyday missionary, right? Because why? Because when we look at this passage and when you look at those friends that carried the, that paralyzed man to Jesus, they did this and they were essentially on a mission on an or, ordinary day of their life. You get that? So like, I'm wondering if some of you here today are feeling perhaps inadequate because you weren't on that team that went to Ecuador this summer and you didn't come up here to share. I'm wondering if some of you guys feel like an, feel inadequate because you didn't sign up to go to be in Ecuador this week. And you must be th you're thinking to yourself, well, I must not be a very good missionary. And my encouragement for you is, no, don't do that to yourself. See, the question I want you to actually consider is what, as my colleague Arul would say, does my mission trip actually start when my alarm clock goes off every morning? Does my mission trip start when my alarm clock goes off every morning? You see, we're not just called to go on missions to DR or to Ecuador, but we're called to be missional in our everyday life. And oftentimes we too easily associate the word mission only with those places that are far away. 
And we're so readily dismissing the very real interactions that we are having on an everyday level with those people that are right next to us who are lost, that you know are lost. I think deep down inside, we know that some of these places can be the hardest places to be missional. See, because when we do that, we be taking a risk with our friends at school. We'll be taking a risk with our teachers. We'll be taking a risk with our coworkers. Essentially, we will be taking a risk with the people that we would still have to continue to have a relationship with. And that's a scary thought. But my challenge is that if we don't practice how to be missionaries in our everyday life with the people that live right around us, that speak the same language as, as us, what makes us think that we will all of a sudden become experts when we go into a foreign land and to minister cross-culturally to other people? So as one of the Bible expositors from this last Urbana this past winter said, uh, he, and I quote, See, if it is not good enough for local consumption, perhaps it is not good enough for export. This is what the Pharisees, so I think this is what the Pharisees were missing that day. They were waiting on God so eagerly and so, so earnestly trying to do everything that they know how to do to be the best versions of, of, of whatever these religious expectations and rules are asking them to be. But when God actually was among them, when God was actually in their midst, they failed to recognize him, and thereby they failed to join the mission that God was already on. So we move into the next part of the conversation that Jesus was having with these folks. He, go, he went ahead and explained, basically because he knew, we saw in Scripture that he knew what the Pharisees were thinking. And he asked them, well, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? So let me talk about that for a second. So what is easier to say? What did Jesus mean by that, right? I mean, we want to talk about why did Jesus say that, but let's talk about which is easier to say, right? So let's say, like, you know, if I'm imposing to be like a savior and, uh, and like you guys all thought I was a fraud, like what's a better thing for me to say, right? What's like, what's a better thing for me if I would come up to Billy and I was like, Hey, your sins are forgiven versus get up and walk. If he was already paralyzed, right? Like, which is, which would I prefer to say if I was really a fraud, right? Obviously like what, if I say to him, your sins are forgiven, like you're not going to see, you can't validate that. You can't see a, a cloud of smoke of sin, like leaving his body. You know what I'm saying? But if, if he was paralyzed and I told him to get up and walk and he doesn't do it, then we know that we're dealing with a fraud here, right? But see, like, Jesus said that for a different reason. But let me just um, – I'll talk about that in a minute. But see, what Jesus did here is he validated this doubt that the people had against him. Because in verse 24, we, we see him saying that. But I want you to know – so he, he still said, you know, your sins are forgiven, right? But he says – but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic man. He commanded him to get up, and he did. So what is the reveal here? The reveal here is that if Jesus is claiming things that only God can claim and doing things and demonstrating things that only God can do, and then he validates it by this miraculous healing, I can't get any clearer than that, that perhaps this man right here is God on earth. Get that? So I asked earlier, why did Jesus say this then? Why did Jesus say, you know, your sins are, your sins are forgiven? I mean, was he just being poetic? Is that a poetic way of saying, well, I'm going to heal you of your paralysis? 
Yeah, I don't think so. See, I think the people there, what, what the people there were expecting that day was to see a miraculous healing that they can see with their eyes take place, right? And certainly to say, get up and walk would be an offer to heal the physical, right? But what we sometimes don't realize when we read this is to say your sins are forgiven is an offer for an eternal kind of healing for the soul. You see, the friends that brought this man, they only, perhaps, they only saw a physical need for healing. But Jesus saw way beyond that. In other words, when Jesus looked into the eyes of this man that was on the ground, instead of just seeing a lifeless body that needed to be healed, Jesus saw an empty soul that needed to be filled. And that was more important to him. See, every person, how do I know this? Because every person we read in, in the Bible that Jesus has any kind of healing hands on, they eventually still died, didn't they? I mean, we don't have like a 2,000-year-old miraculous man like walking around here. I was healed. Like, that's why I'm still alive, right? Like, every person that Jesus healed, they still died eventually, right? Because the healing of the physical is only temporary, right? What really matters here is the healing of the soul because the healing of the soul, the healing of the spirit is of eternal values. Then that brings us to the question then. What is our motivation when we are going out there and helping people that are in need? And I think I think we can we can answer that by looking at what we actually offer people, right? I mean, oftentimes we see needy people around all the time, homeless folks, uh, poor folks, right? Um, and uh, and you know, we think about giving money, we think about giving food, some of us even sacrifice our time to be there with them. Or some of us think about changing our entire vocation so that I'm going to become a doctor one day so I can move to like a third world country and practice somewhere abroad to help these poor people, right? But the question here is, do what we offer, do we actually offer anything that is of eternal value? Because the truth is, if we all claim to be people who have been saved by God's grace, then each and every one of us, we already have a story that testifies to the power of the gospel, don't we? And, and the question then is, are, do you genuinely believe that? Do you genuinely believe that the, this gospel that we have that's, that's, that's been joined with our own story, our own experience with it, that is actually what people need the most compared to all else, compared to anything else that we can give them. Because after all, that is the only thing that we can, that you and I can actually offer that can bring some kind of eternal satisfaction. Amen? So, and the good news is, like, you already have it. So you don't need to, to wait to, quote-unquote, get there in order to have that. You don't need to get a, quote-unquote, degree in order to share that. You, the people of God, you, already, you are already empowered and equipped to bring that same kind of healing, the healing of the soul, to anybody, anywhere, whether they're right outside these four walls or they're all the way down south in Ecuador. So for some of you here today, I'm wondering if perhaps God is revealing to you at this moment, this morning, where those paralytics that you are called to carry to him are in in your everyday life. This is how I've seen it uh, in my context this year. And in fact, this is the exact reason why we do what we do at UCF on campus. Uh, and we, referring to myself, my colleagues, and my students. See, because for, for too many people on campus, we might be the first Bibles that they'll ever get to read. 
we might be the first Jesus they might, they might ever get to, to meet. And, and we do what we do on campus every day because there are people that are in need for folks to carry them to Jesus every single day, whether they recognize that or not. Do we see them? See, this past year, we've seen it happen in many, many different ways. So traditionally, the, our ministry model is to have a bunch of small groups that are planted in all these different dorms on campus, right? And each dorm will have a community that meets right there where folks can get plugged in. But see, like some of my students, they felt that, you know what, this is not enough anymore. We're going to take it to the next step. So an example is I have a couple of students that, was, that were uh, theater majors, and they, uh, they realized that the peers – that they spend most of their time with in classrooms every day, have a very high skepticism towards the faith. They have a lot of doubts, and they have a little distrust towards Christianity. And they decided, you know what? These people are never going to come to a meeting that's a room full of Christians. What if we brought what we have to them? So these students went over, and they, they planted a missional small group in the theater building right there where they're showing the love of Christ and welcoming people to come and actually be curious and answer the questions that they have. And that's, uh, that group has, has since expanded. It's not just for the performing arts students anymore, but we have, a, we have several students that want to do sa- similar things in all the different arts um, departments on campus. Um, we also have a, a group of students that um, they really began to, to feel like, you know what, every time somebody is on campus like preaching the gospel, whether they're sound or not, there's always a, a bunch of people that come from more of an athe- atheistic background that really want to oppose that. And, like, instead of, like, turning our backs on them, like, they decided that, you know what, I'm going to equip myself and, and, and study apologetics. For you guys don't know that word, that means the defense of the faith, right? So, basically, they're equipping themselves to be in a position where they can actually be in relationships with atheist students and have an intellectual conversation about faith, have an intellectual discussion about faith, and equip themselves in such a way where they actually know how to perhaps respond and answer some of the most difficult questions that people have about religion and spirituality we see we're seeing the same things in our ethnic specific communities so uh we have a community named vishwasa that is a uh, that is a group that is um geared towards reaching out to south asian students per, uh, predominantly coming from hindu and muslim backgrounds and some of the things that they dis- did this year they had some events where uh they created space for some interfaith dialogues and out of that we recently had the muslim student association on campus come to us and say you know what like we felt like you guys were so welcoming that you're opening our our trust towards who you are, and I, we actually want to sit down with you and read the Bible and the Quran side by side and to see what the difference is. You know how difficult that is to establish that kind of relationship with Muslim students? Um, La Fe, it stands for Latino Fellowship. That's a community that we have on campus where uh, each of our leaders in this group, they went and joined each join a different Hispanic student association so that they can expand their network and, and continue to meet and network with the people that come from their heritage. And a couple of these students have actually built so much trust that they have been elected to become these club officials, these club officers. And they're now in a position where they can really influence folks and share the gospel through these networks. Mosaic is a group of black students that just got launched this past semester uh, couple of our, our students that, that saw what's been happening with La Fe and they decided that, you know what, we want to create a space where we can invite black students to come in and, and really explore the, like what it means to be 
African-American or Afro-Caribbean or basically what it means to be black in Christ and what kind of gifts are given to these people for them to bring to the greater table as well. What about those, those that look like us, East Asians? Uh, we're starting to grow a little bit. This was a really difficult place at UCF because the truth of the matter, the reality is that the East Asian folks at UCF, um, there's a huge, huge divide between those who are churched versus those who are unchurched. There's almost no relationship between those of us that are churched and those that come from our backgrounds that are unchurched. And that is not okay, quite frankly, right? And some of our students this past semester, you know, people like Chris Lee, sorry to call you out, I don't know where you're at, um, that he started to kind of hang out with us and he's like really growing a heart to want to serve and be an everyday missionary on campus. And this is something that he's thinking about doing, right? And we have several other students uh, that come from East Asian backgrounds that, that, that are starting to see this and we want to start something where we're intentionally seeking out those lost among people of our heritage on campus as well. And, uh, you know, so just to mention some of the things that are also happening is we have students that are, that are not just keeping this at UCF, but they've taken this movement out to the Rosen School of Hospitality down by International Drive. Uh, with the help of Monica Lee, we planted our first nurses uh, Christian Fellowship is a nursing-specific branch of InterVarsity that is meeting right there in the nursing building so that the students can learn that, you know what, my life is not just about healthcare in the physical sense, but I want to learn about healthcare of the spiritual sense as well directly applying to this message, right? And then we have students that are planting movements at Valencia, at Seminole State, and we're seeing all these networks connected together, all because they want their life to be more than just about going to school, studying hard, getting good grades, and making money. But they're seeing the everyday Jesus and everyday life calling them and transforming them to, to be missionaries in the exact places where they're at, right? See, at the end, see, this is, this is why what I do what I do because I get to empower, I get to coach, I get to run alongside of these students, and ultimately I get to watch them, most of whom who came in as narrow-minded students who only wanted to focus on their school, and I get to see how they get trans transformed by Jesus, and I get to see how they go out and carry their friends to Jesus. And I'll tell you, that's some of the most exciting things I've ever had the privilege to witness. At the end of this past semester, we, uh, had, uh, we had a night where we wanted to honor the graduating seniors and also give them an opportunity to kind of leave uh, some parting words of wisdom with our students. And uh, as, uh, as one of them reflected over the years that she spent running the race with us, uh, she was encouraging our students to continue, continue to sacrificially invest in the lives of each other, invest in the lives of those who are lost on campus. And she said these words, and I, 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 tell you, I couldn't be more proud hearing this coming from a student. She said, because at the end of everything, Jesus is not going to be concerned about whether or not you got an A or a B in your biology or a chemistry class. But what's really going to matter are the lives that are forever changed because of the times that you have sacrificed or perhaps even the grades that you have sacrificed in order to walk with someone into the kingdom. How profound is that? You know, I think everybody, all the students come into our campus, like with the hope of gaining a whole new set of knowledge, but not every one of them get to leave with a whole new set of wisdom like this. So in closing, I just want to kind of bring us back to the beginning as spectators in the crowd that day who have just witnessed everything that have unfolded. You have a choice. One, perhaps you're realizing that, you know what, I feel like I can identify with the paralytic. I am the paralytic, and I need someone to come and carry me to Jesus. 
And what is what are some of your paralysis? Perhaps it's a sin issue. And I say that word very carefully because oftentimes we think about sins only as things that we commit. But sins are just as broken when it's committed against us too. And we are all sinners. And what that means is that we all contribute to the brokenness of this world. And perhaps because of these brokenness that we have, you feel like there's some kind of paralysis that happened in your spiritual life where, where you just cannot bring yourself to Jesus. Perhaps you are somebody who have been a Christian for a long time. You've been in the church for a long time. You feel like you've always been able to say that I believe in Jesus, but I never felt like I actually trusted Jesus. And I can't bring myself to Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you today, friend, your sins are forgiven. Will you take a risk on your life today and trust Jesus today? For others of you, you may be feeling like, you know what? I've been part of the crowd for way too long. I need to find people in my life that I can go and carry to Jesus. I feel like I've been really convicted by, by God's word today, and I want to live as an everyday missionary. Now, before I go, any long, uh, go on more about this, I just want to give you a word of caution real quick uh, on this idea of of the conviction that we can feel sometimes, okay? And this is actually coming out from a pastor, uh, Ken Fong. He's a, he, a huge Asian-American church pastor out, out in California. I was at a conference last year, and he was basically speaking specifically on this issue. And uh, I'm going to try and paraphrase what he said. So these are not my original uh, material, but uh, the wise words of Pastor Ken Fong. But when it comes to our, con- our understanding of conviction, um, I think those of us that come from Asian cultures, I'm not quite sure if we always have a good grasp on what is conviction versus our own sense of guilt and shame. Because Asian culture is a shame-based culture. You know, in sociology, that's what we are studied as. And uh, what this means, you know, this is, I can give you a whole seminar on what that means, but for the lack of time, I'll tell you kind of, basically what this means is that we are overwhelmingly motivated by our sense of duty and obligation rather than delight in everything that, that we do. And how do we see this? The example that I have for you is for most of us, our second generation Asian American that grew up kind of in an immigrant family, this is perhaps how mo- many of us have heard our stories growing up. We hear our stories as, you know what, your father, your mother, they left everything in, in China, in Korea, wherever, whatever country you want to, you know, your father, your mother, your father, your mother, they left everything in the old country to come to this country. They sacrificed it all. There are doctors over there, but they're working as, you know, surgical scrub nurses here. There are engineers over there. They're working as, you know, janitors here or in your school cafeteria here. Why did they do that? See, they did that all for you. So if you don't live in such a way where you're making them proud, then you are ungrateful and shame on you. See, like, I think most of us can identify with that story, right? But here's the problem. Here's the problem because then the same group of us come to church. And I'm not saying, I'm not accusing any pastors for, like, deliberating, deliberately, like, communicating this message. But we, as Asian people, oftentimes are hardwired when we hear the gospel to hear it in this way. That Jesus Christ left the throne of heaven. He left the comforts of his father. He gave it all up and he came down to earth and he lived a life of humiliation. He died a death that he didn't deserve. Why did he do that? He did that all for you. So if you don't live in such a way that you're making God proud, then you're ungrateful and shame on you. And so we frantically run around and we're always making sure that we're showing up early for church. We're always making sure that we're going to every single prayer meeting that's available during the week. And we spend our entire weekend serving at the church and we sign up for every single mission trip every single summer. And just as the greater American society labels us as model minorities, 
we foolishly pride ourselves as model Christians in the greater church. But friends, my, the truth this morning I want to tell you is that this type of gospel interpretation is putting more shackles on our people than actually setting us free. If that's the way we feel, see, there's no grace in an environment like that. If the conviction that you're feeling is oftentimes more motivated by a sense of duty and obligation rather than delight, then we need to reevaluate and really consider whether or not we actually identify more right now with the paralytic who needs this Jesus to come to us again and say, friend, your sins are forgiven. To hear this Jesus come and tell us that he loved us first before we could go and do anything for him. See, we need to know that this Jesus loved us deeply and delights in us first. And we need to truly believe it before we can go and carry others to Jesus. Otherwise, we will be going for the wrong reasons and we might be carrying someone to the wrong kind of Jesus. And we will burn out before you even know it. So that's my word of caution. So if this is the house that Jesus was in today, and as a spectator who had just witnessed everything that happened, what are your next steps that you need to take? I think the truth is that all of us are on some kind of a gradient between this paralyzed man and those friends of his that brought him to Jesus. I think for some of us, you know, we feel like we've been Christians for a long time, but we really need this morning. What we really need this morning is perhaps to hear from Jesus yet again, saying, friend, your sins are forgiven. And for others of us, my hope is that this message has offered some kind of a renewed joy in the eternal salvation that you and I already have before we go and do anything in response this afternoon. If that is so, if that is so, then my challenge for you is this. Are you willing to take a risk this week and start taking steps to become an everyday missionary? Not out of a sense of duty or obligation, but out of delight, right? Out of delight, out of this joy that we have in Jesus. See, the alarm clock is buzzing now. It's time to wake up and it's time to go bring somebody home. Amen? Amen. Let me, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you first and foremost, for your love. And I just pray for anybody that's here this morning who are feeling like there's just so much pressure. Lord, we ask that you would set them free. You would give them the sense of joy and that you would give them the opportunity to know that just what it is, just what it means for you to come and save, save us out of grace, out of your abundant grace for our life. And it is out of that place, and I only ask it is out of that place that we would choose to respond by going out and bringing more home so that they can also experience and have this type of genuine salvation, Lord. So, Lord, we just pray for, uh, we pray for um, our hearts to respond now in whatever that means, in whatever context. Uh, and I just ask that whatever posture that you're calling us to take next, Lord, that you will give us a community here that is acting out of grace and love for each other as we all walk closer and closer to you, Lord. So we thank you. We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name.